This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings, we begin to talk about mental health in the classroom by way of the idea of resilience. Matt wants us to read up about the plague. And Phil takes us all the way to the outer rim with an unnecessary discussion of Star Trek. Woman, woman, tell me your name. Let me have my life reclaimed. Waiting, wondering. Like, I spread it over like five days, like an hour and a half. Except for, well, when I had the friends come over, I put them to work, and then we went to uh, Popeye's Chicken. Have you ever had Popeye's Chicken? Oh, man. They're starting to spring like, up around here. It's like the greasiest, greasiest stuff I've ever had. I've never actually had popcorn chicken before. Oh. Or not popcorn chicken, uh, popcorn shrimp. I, I would weigh like 400 pounds if I went there. It's like every day. It's tough. It's, it's tough. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, and, um, and it sticks with you. When you don't eat fast food, it kind of like, you feel it. You feel yeah, your age does. after you eat fast oh. food. I'm yeah, not, I never want to feel my age. Yeah, no. So we painted the room. It's um, it's the uh, <laughs> announcement. Um, my wife's pregnant, and she's going to, uh, you know, of all things go well, give birth at the end of June, Yay. first of July. Yay. Congratulations, clap, 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 Matt! Clap, clap, clap! <laughs> Matt will be a father. Absolutely, first time father. I guess we should stipulate that. First time father. They could probably hear it in my voice. I, I think I think we're gonna talk a little bit more about <laughs> I your think that might be a recurring theme. Yeah. So that's probably so how's what your wife, uh, all what, I'm gonna be uh talking about for like So how's your wife doing? Long. What trimester she's in? She's third trimester and um she's she went away out of town for a week to visit family back Uh-oh. home. And uh, she came back and she was like so much bigger, man. Like all and, coming out in the front. Wow. Like it's just stretching out. Like I saw her in profile and I was like, damn. <laughs> like and we had to make sure that we don't have two in there. <laughs> are you sure that you don't have to we're sure we don't have to okay. yeah but we don't know what we're having either we're keeping that a secret because no gender reveal no we're um we are uh traditional that way i guess I and traditionalists are, are not bad so how was your week matt what uh what happened in the week of matt that's pretty much it i uh i painted and then i drank beer afterwards and watched my uh beloved toronto blue jays just get to the worst start in franchise history um, they're, I think right now, like two and 11, maybe. So and, what's happening uh, with the Blue Jays? The, the, like, what did they just not show up to, to spring training? Did they decide not to play? You heard it here first, but this is not news to anybody who watches uh, the team. Uh, they look old. They, they look real old. Yeah. It looks like me and you taking hacks up against uh, oh, Chris man. Sale or whatever. You would not want to see me <laughs> yeah. try to play baseball. It's just right like now. throwing our backs out every oh, time boy. we take a swing. You just imagine. Uh, they got um starting pitcher who has an inflamed elbow, which usually means Tommy John surgery. And that's like Yikes. a two year rehab basically. Yeah. Um, and uh, we also have Josh Donaldson, who's our like all-star he's third out. baseman. Yeah. He's got like this messed up calf. Um, and he's like, it's funny. Uh, I think we were talking about it before, but Donaldson is known as having like the biggest calves in the major leagues. So like Ooh, he what? pulls his calves all the time. Okay. Yeah. He used to be a back catcher. So that's probably uh, what from it bending down. Yeah. And then we're also, we're missing someone else as well. Um, another starter. And then like everyone is just hitting like garbage, even though we're getting good pitching. So like, it's very, very frustrating times, but I'm trying not to, let it affect my positivity about being a father. <laughs> yeah, that's fa- fair enough. <laughs> kind of puts things into perspective. So, uh, I'm going to I'm going to rub this in just a little bit, Absolutely. but my Yankees are second in AL East this week. Yeah, I see that. Uh they were <laughs> amazing. 
Uh, I think uh, Aaron Judge could hit by far the longest home run in Major League Baseball right now. He is just slugging it amazing. Uh, you have um, Bird as well, right? Because that guy's supposed to be crazy as well. He's another guy, uh, a young guy you have, um, who's just like Aaron Judge. He's, uh, yeah, he's just a masher. Like that's the thing with the Yankees. They were the oldest team in baseball before the Blue Jays became. Actually, the the Blue Jays have for the last two years have been the oldest team in the majors. Um, and uh, but the Yankees are like they got the veterans, but then they have these like all-star young guys, these prospects coming up and like making immediate impacts right away. So I'm yeah, not, things I, are looking bright for the, uh, the, uh, the evil empire. You know, I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not gonna jinx it. So I'm gonna, you know, knock on wood, knock on wood. Hopefully that's but, plastic underneath there. <laughs> but, but I think the 2017 New York Yankees could go all the way. They, they, they could take it. They could take it. Maybe. I mean, uh, Boston has, uh, lost, uh, David Price there elite starting pitcher so there's a bit of a hole there and nobody's really like every team in the division has more wins than the blue jays but uh nobody's really seeming to run away with it so well it's gonna be a dogfight let's just put this in perspective this is the optimistic blue jays fan it's gonna be a dogfight man no you know what the blue jays are playing three and twelve we have the orioles the orioles out of all teams the orioles ten and four and the yankees ten and five we got the Red Sox at ten and six, and then Tampa Bay playing almost five hundred at nine and eight. The Blue Jays are so far out right now. I don't even think Damn. like if you lined up all the bats that the Blue Jays had in their dugout, you wouldn't even get them. Uh, you know, as far as away uh, can they see from like a second or third place <laughs> position? Right, they are so far out. They are really far out of it. Um, you know how I knew that they were going to be really far out of it is that I haven't actually looked at the division standings at all this year or the overall standings. Like, well, I don't even want to know what teams were classed with. I know the Blue Jays have the worst record in majors. Well, right now. once the Yankees beat the Orioles, uh, I think on they start the series on the twenty fourth. By all means, I hate the Orioles. I hate the Yankees too, man. Oh God, I just want to reach over rip that hat off your head <laughs> i was so kind as not wearing my uh my blue jays hat i'm wearing a hat that refers to a no, motorcycle you know, exhaust company <laughs> i don't care if you wear your blue jays hat because like uh, you know we play the blue jays we kill you we play any other team we're gonna beat them it's gonna be a tight series against the orioles starting the 24th but i think the yankees are gonna pull through who do the jays have up next can you check that for me quickly while i try to defend my team i mean the problem with the Blue Jays is that we got good all of a sudden. For two years, two seasons, we made the conference uh, finals, or the uh, the ALCS, two years in a row, which is completely unheard of. Um, there's statistics out there that like the unlikelihood of a team making the playoffs even three years in a row it um, is pretty high. So I think a lot of Blue Jays fans have gotten a false sense of entitlement. Um you know, I'll say this. I, I was watching this disgusting team way back in like 1997. My fandom goes back to 1991. Um, but they had some dark years. They had, they went 22 straight years without making the uh, postseason. And then I just see clowns wow. like Phil who are just like, I like the Yankees. They're always good. Yeah. I, Despicable. I've, I've liked the Yankees for a while. So coming up. <laughs> That's what my buddy Chris the always Jays, says. <laughs> the, the Jays are facing off against the Angels for a bunch of games. And then um, 
20, the Angels. The Angels. Then then they'll face the Cardinals. Oh, but that's on the road because whenever the, the Blue Jays go to the West Coast, these East Coast teams, they always get devastated. Then they're playing Tampa Bay, the Rays. The devil, got, the devil Rays. I refuse to call them the Tampa Bay Rays. They are forever called the Devil Rays to me. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so, you know, after that, we got the Red Sox. <laughs> It's not looking too good for him. No, no, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't look good for the Blue Jays. But I'll be watching every single game like I always do, and I always have since 1991. Yeah. So, Phil, how was your week? What'd you get up to? Uh, my week has been pretty busy. I've spent most of it out of the house, uh, you know, dealing with a variety of things. Um, I did uh, sink my teeth into uh, Nassim Taleb's Anti Fragile. That's a book about uh, the happiness industry. Picks up, um, you know, a little bit about uh, love errors. Oh, wow. So is this a, uh, a book for fun? Uh, this is, right now it's a book for fun. It might make its way into some of my work. This is how we get down. <laughs> yeah. How we, we read uh, <laughs> nice, we you know, what is this, like a 400 page, five, uh, actually finishes at 500 page. Yeah. That's the dense little book. <laughs> That's my evening. Beautiful. Evening. So other than that, what did you La- do? Last weekend, uh, we cooked. Uh, we started off the barbecue season with some uh, some good old burgers, cheeseburgers. And uh, I did uh, some smoked ham. Nice. And, uh, some turkey on the grill. Yeah, and I tried some of that. It was uh, divine, divine. It actually made me weak in the knees. It, and I never really get that with food. I'm not a big foodie guy, but that one was like... Whew. I can see why people do this. It was pretty good. So we've been uh, eating. That's a huge understatement. <laughs> it yeah. was exceptional. Well, Superb. Yeah, Sublime. Thanks. Sublime. <laughs> pretty <Yeah>. banned. <laughs> we, so yeah, we haven't been cooking. We've been eating leftovers all week. Uh, we went out for dinner on Wednesday. Um, so, you know, it's just been a lot of time out of the house. So it's nice to spend the afternoon with Matt uh, in the office recording the podcast. Looking deep into each other's eyes and speaking uh, into microphones. Soon we'll read each other some poetry. Oh, can't wait. Um, so, um, anyway, welcome uh, to Semi-Intellectual Musings, co-hosted by myself, Philip Primo. And Matt Sanderson. Um, the, the goal of the podcast is really to, to provide a f- platform to promote academic research and publications. Um, Absolutely, yeah. And from time to time, we'll have our friends and colleagues, people we've met along our own academic journeys come in talk about the things that uh, inspired them and uh, gets them thinking. So we explore social sciences, humanities, and arts. The general feel is pretty laid back, uh, a little whimsical. We don't uh, really take ourselves too seriously. Um, Our goal is to bring you a a series of discussions and interviews, overviews that are approachable, relatable, fit in with our kind of everyday experience in life. And with the interviews that we'll have, some will be with academics, people that have inspired us, um, or we think their work is inspiring, I suppose. And also change makers, people who are maybe outside of the walls of academia who uh, are doing interesting things as well. So we promise to make things interesting and relatable in that way. Uh, we're going to try to combine the published world to everyday experiences, making connections between unseemingly unconnected things. And we do it with uh, reviews, storytelling, uh, sometimes some interviews. We'll give us our honest opinions, and we really look forward to hearing yours. 
So you can tweet at us at the SimPod. That's the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D on Twitter. You can email us at semi-intellectual, all one word, at gmail.com. That's semi-intellectual at gmail.com. Please subscribe to the show. Leave us some ratings and reviews. Let us know what you think. Um, near the end, we're going to do some recommendations, and we'd love to hear your recommendations. Um, so email us, tweet at us, do all that kind of stuff. Um, the show is divided into segments, several segments. Uh, right now, we're a couple minutes into the intro. Um, next, uh, we're going to start talking about a couple articles. Uh, we'll have a discussion around that. Um, and then, um, you know, near the end, we're going to do some recommendations, um, maybe podcasts that we've been listening to, uh, maybe some books that we've been picking up on. Um, once in a while, we also talk about cooking, gardening, drinking, sports, probably in that order. Uh, some shows will follow a particular theme, like, you know, we'll explore power, agency, religion, um, maybe sex. Absolutely. Maybe drugs. Maybe some rock and roll in there. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> um, um, and all of the recommendations we make and any articles that we review will be available uh, in the show notes. Um, sometimes as well, uh, uh, if we look at images or listen to things as well, we'll link those up uh, through YouTube. Check out the show notes. So follow us on Twitter, email us. Look at the show notes. We'll always post what we'll uh, what we explore in the notes. So if you miss something that we've talked about along the way, don't feel bad. Uh, go look at the notes, and I suppose at some point I'll have to set up a website. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I keep website. referring to this website that doesn't actually exist right now. <laughs> yeah, that hasn't happened yet, but it <laughs> Not will. Not yet. Soon. Soon. All right. Uh, well, that's. Uh, you know what? Let's get on with the show. <laughs> So the end of the semester is approaching us, um, you know, moving into final exams. Maybe we've done final exams, preparing to do final exams. And something that uh, is coming up continuously in the media, talks on campus, is student mental health. So um, how about we talk a little bit, start the conversation. I think this is something that will be ongoing uh, around, Absolutely. you know, student mental health, mental health in the classroom, mental health on the university. Absolutely. I think it's uh, definitely you hear out there that it has much stigma attached to it, not just um, mental health among students, but just mental health in general. So as Phil is saying, starting a conversation is the easiest way to attack that stigma. And I think that's something that we all need to do. So I think that's one of the uh, uh, important things of actually starting these conversations. Yeah. And related uh, to the stigma behind it, there's been a lot of talk about developing classroom techniques. Classroom. Oh, really? Interesting, because uh, I didn't hear much of that when I was going to university. No, I mean, when we were in university, uh, in our undergrad anyway, not a lot of people talked about it. You had yeah. the, your mental health resource center. That was pretty much it. Yeah, there was always, that is one thing I'll say. There was always a mental health resource center, and that never seemed to, there never seemed to be much of a barrier. You can actually just walk through. And, and out in, you know, the so-called real world or away from the ivory tower, those sorts of resources don't actually exist. There aren't these sort of centers you can just walk into without an appointment. Right. Um, 
So, so good job, uh, good job, administration on so, that front. That will be the last you hear from me on that front. <laughs> uh, probably. Um, but one of the things that piqued my interest was an article um, published in University Affairs on uh, not not too long ago in early April by Jessica Rydell, and she's talking about building resilience into the classroom. Uh, how students respond to failure is a strong predictor of future success, and I something like this really piques my interest for you know, obvious reasons that I'm interested in the concept of resilience, but also that we have to build in classroom techniques to try to respond to students' failure because failure is an honest part of going through school. We don't talk about it a lot. So Rydell in this piece suggests that for students to fare better, they need to fail better. Hmm. And that's an interesting kind of way of approaching it. Can I, um, can I just jump in? Um, whatever you got, whatever you got. Um, so it's interesting right there that we often think of failure as a negative emotional concept. Um, but if everybody fails and those who succeed must fail to get there, then I don't know, maybe is it like a reassessment of the emotions around resilience? Cause when I encountered the concept in my research, it, um, always had a negative connotation to it. It's either you are resilient or you're not. And if you're not, then you're weak or something. Right. And I think what Rydell is trying to suggest in, in, in the article is that um, failure can come if you have resilience or not. And in her assessment of it, mm-hmm. and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I can read you some passages of it, she understands resilience as a number of characteristics, including levels of persistence, effort, positive mindset, motivation, and self-regulation. So those, you know... Can you run through those one more time? Yeah, so uh, levels of persistence, Mm. effort, positive mindset, motivation, and self-regulation. And I think it's fair to say that every student has varying levels of those sorts of things. So what Rydell is saying is that, you know, resilience embodies those, but the the real question is how do you foster that in the classroom? How do you, mm. how do you either increase or decrease those sorts of things? And how do you allow students to fail in an environment that will allow them to ultimately succeed? Kind of like, uh, um, Marcel Mauss's techniques of the body. Yeah, absolutely. Right? It's like learning how to swim better and run faster. <laughs> absolutely. Right? And that's, um, and it's interesting. I, that I make, um, um, like a sports analogy there because, you know, I don't know about you and how schooling's done out in uh, Quebec, but um, physical education PE class uh, was not mandatory after grade ten, right? No, That's usually the cutoff. And there's been countless psychological studies um, that have really strongly indicated that physical activity and um, academic performance are really strongly correlated. So I'm wondering how we can kind of combine like an embodied <laughs> perspective to this. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're definitely on the right track and um, you know, what really Rydell uh, kind of puts forward is that one way that we can look at this is through the notion of quests. And I think this kind of picks up a little bit on your point of physical exertion and these sorts of things. So I'm, I'm going to read you a, a quote, a passage from the article. Uh, Rydell says, quote, Quests usually follow a pattern. During a communal event, usually a feast, a knight is presented with a quest. 
The knight embarks on a confusing and sometimes circuitous journey and must learn something essential about himself before succeeding and returning home to share his knowledge, forged through the experience, with his community. This pattern also applies to teaching and learning, where we often begin conversations in the communal space of a classroom, send students off on curiosity-driven assignments, and then ask them to share their findings at the end of the term. So right there, she's linking these quests that knights have done to our academic journey, to how students learn, to the expectations that are placed upon them. And we can kind of see, I think, where she's going to go with this, is that the essence of the concept of resilience is built into both how we learn in the classroom and how a knight or a quest of a knight is presented in literature. Now, Jessica Rydell is a, a literature professor, so so the She's metaphor gonna, makes sense. So the metaphor That's makes yeah, sense to her. It's not just like, like out of nowhere. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, she's actually an associate professor in the English department of Bishop's University and a chair of the Teaching and Learning Center and a 3M National Teaching Fellow. So she's right up there. Um, and that's, and it, it's interesting, um, like just when, uh, just as a point of fact there, to look at where they are coming from. And even when you read this article, you can see not only is it based off of her academic inquiries, but it's actually based off of her in-class teaching experiences. Absolutely. So she's, she writes the article as if she's embodied this uh, as a practice. Yeah. And what she does is that she teaches students uh, or walks students through these kind of uh, night um, journeys uh, starting with Edmund Spencer's uh, The Fairy Queen, which is a late 16th century chivalric quest. And, um, you know, the article presents it as uh, she teaches this allegorical journey. Initially, there's high expectations, but you know what? There's failure. And um, through teaching these sorts of works in her literature courses, she's able to show students that at the end of the day, you know, failure is... Uh, a, inevitable part of a journey and it's how we form ourselves uh, that end up mattering can i throw um a counterpoint there um i also wrote as soon as he was saying journey a couple of times there i actually wrote that down on my notes prior um i wanted to kind of focus in on how do we foster curiosity in the classroom because it's been in my experience that if you can turn on that light bulb or that curi the dim light bulb of curiosity where you want to find out more so you can make that light brighter. Um, I found that there's many ways, there's many techniques of the body, so to speak, to turn on curiosity and curiosity is emotionally positive. And I also would just add, because I tend to forget, um, that a key part of curiosity, um, is admitting what you don't know, admitting ignorance. And that's really what starts because curiosity is just about finding out more. And you can't find out more if you don't know anything to begin with. Yeah. And in the words of Rydell, uh, every uh, knight accepts help and advice, applies it to his or her context, and sets off with a renewed sense of purpose. And she's and this is the claim. That was renewed, not nude. Renewed. <laughs> renewed sense of purpose. And this is, this is the claim that, she, that she's giving us. This is the essence of medieval resilience. So the essence of, of medieval resilience is knowing the limitations of your knowledge, oh, being able to seek out guides in your quest, Ooh, guides. and then being able to go beyond the initial failure and push through persevere. 
Um, I think it's kind of interesting guides. That's a, that's a fascinating concept. I'll throw a, another little recommendation um, at you. Um, but Timothy Ferris, do you know who that is? Right. Yeah. He wrote the books like the four hour body, the four hour chef, the four hour work week, I think. Um, but one of the points that he makes is when he's seeking out interviewees or people to, um, guide him, essentially, he'll often go for like the second or third overall ranked person rather than going after the top person in the echelon. Um, and you often find in, um, medieval cheval, chivalric, how do you say that? Chivalric? Chival- chivalric? Chivalric. Yeah. Let's go with chivalric. chivalric. Um, you find in these um, tales of knights, um, their guides are often not who you think they were would be. It's usually like a king or a queen sending you off on a journey, and then you meet some like hunchback <laughs> like, dwarfs. Dwarf or whatever, yeah. Hermits. Um, and those are who actually help you. So um, don't be afraid to look for guides in the unexpected places. And so I'm going to quote uh, Rydell again on this because I think it kind of sums up uh, what she's building for us in her thesis. Uh, so as knights, as students, victories are often achieved through local action and a series of small quests, not in large-scale large scale warfare. We must tackle seemingly insurmountable obstacles with creativity and agility. We undertake as a fundamental principle to defend the rights of the defenseless, marginalized, and voiceless, and we are committed to the pursuit of truth and freedom in its many forms. So the analogy between knight's quests and student life is apt. And what Rydell is telling us is that through the teaching of these quests, that we're able to show students um, a valuable lesson in resilience. So we can integrate, celebrate our failures, um, and that ultimately it will culminate in the in the moment when knowledge collides with experience and um, I'll quote her quote Rydell again, when the fear of failure disappears and we harness the courage to reach our best capacities and become our excellent selves. This for Rydell is how we can help in the classroom. This I think is what she's saying is the essence of resilience and through analogy, uh, you know, 16th century night's quests. It's, like it, bam. <laughs> well done. Um, I think this idea of uh, the fear of failure, um, when I was uh, teaching in the classroom, I did have so many experiences of students when they got even like seven out of 10, like 70%, would just be devastated. And it was literally the worst grade they've ever gotten. And I think part of that is, we're afraid to let our children fail. Uh, but the other part, I think, in that, like, not having an ability to fail is that, I sound like a get-off-my-lawn old man right here, but everybody was a winner growing up. And I feel like I was fortunate. Um, I'm 34, so I just saw the t- the start of that when I was kind of leaving sports and, and leaving grade school. And I think what's resultant, what has been the result is that you have a whole bunch of students who don't know how to fail and become devastated when they do. Yeah. And I think, you know, failure has its place in the emotional makeup of any human being. Well, it's natural. Um, like, I mean, I think we have more failures than successes in our I, life. I 
continually as cynical failed. as shit what I just said right there. But wow. <laughs> you know, I I think I, well, I both failures, Phil. It's okay. <laughs> admitting that you're a failure is probably harder than failing. I think mm. the initial reaction is to turn and run. Uh, but I think being able to pick yourself up and continue is mm. what some analysts have identified as being a resilient trait or mm. the ability to foster some resilient trait is the ability to, you know, carry on. It's like, mm. you know, you know, keep calm, carry on sort of analogy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Make good little workers, right? Good little workers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> One day where you have to read, um, is it Weber? Is is that the the Protestant ethic? We will get into yeah. We Weber. have to we have to read a couple of chapters we'll get each on Weber. that. Yeah. So, um, you know, following up on Rydell's piece, uh, you know, her insistence that we can link 16th century knights' quests made me think um, of another work. This one by Daniel R. Curtis, entitled "Coping with Crisis: The Resilience and Vulnerability of Pre-Industrial Settlements," and what? Can I, um, sorry, can I just, every once in a while, I'm just going to jump. Um, it is interesting that resilience and vulnerability are two concepts that are often married in the literature. And uh, just so that when you hear those two, know that they're interrelated, feeding off each other, and they're going to be occurring in a lot of the resilience literature. Yeah, and I think at some point I'll get into why that is. Uh, yeah, they're constructed sure. as kind of opposites. Um, but what Curtis is trying to do with those two concepts, resilience and vulnerability, is to show that some pre-industrial sentiments were able to pick themselves up, carry on after natural disaster or economic disaster, uh, while others failed. And his main quest is to understand why that is. So he looks at several uh, factors that could deal with it. Um, and really what he's trying to get at is how did these communities thrive in the face of crisis while others appear to have failed in attempts to withstand calamities. Um, and it's apt because both Curtis um, and Rydell are picking up on 16th century kind of communities or societies. Um, but here's, here's, here's kind of the problem. And I, and I, and I don't want to knock anyone down for this, but what Curtis essentially is showing is that, some communities succeeded because they just had to. And when you die, when you deep dive into the work, what you actually uncover is that there are many sections, varieties, flavors of resilience that end up popping up. But yet the insistence in both accounts to focus on only some of them renders the concept almost mute. So what you have is when students are faced with failure, here's a series of techniques that can allow them to succeed. Or when communities are faced with failure, here are a set of techniques for them to succeed. In either account, resilience is being limited to what those techniques were. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And um, these techniques that they, these people were using in his model, Curtis's model, um, were, were they based on techniques used by people in the past? Or were these novel techniques that, of resilience? That Some of them had to be novel. Uh, I think... Uh, ultimately, some of them were learned. And also, sorry, can I just say, like, what catastrophe wouldn't demand resilience in some way or the other? Like, how can he delineate between um, these people had to be resilient because they had to, because of circumstances, and these people, they could just chill out and become nomads or something? Like, 
Yeah, I mean, that's basically what happened in some uh, examples that he points to. He does a series of case studies, um, you know, and some of them, what ends up happening is there's a rapid growth and then a rapid decline in population between 1600s and the 1900s. Uh, it takes a little bit of a long durée historical view in some instances. But wouldn't, sorry, wouldn't that just be what would be expected within the Industrial Revolution? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of... Because you know, everyone what, flocks what to the cities and they start getting spreading diseases amongst themselves. Yeah, that's that's syphilising themselves into uh, death. <laughs> that, that's one of the things that happens. Um, Interesting, and I will note just as a point of clarity for anyone who's not familiar, when he says pre-industrial, um, the industrial revolution. Some people say it started in the 1750s. I would say in in Britain, but really got going uh, at the turn of the 1800s, and really, really got going the peak would be like the 1850s and into the early 1900s so just if you're wondering what pre-industrial so it's when he's saying 16th century it's the 1500s as well yes yes just throw me yeah here we go the two history buffs here um so i think one important finding from curtis's work um stems uh, from chapter seven and it's when faced with inequitable distribution of land and power that uh, certain lease agreements and certain agricultural arrangements um, laid the historic foundations for peasant adaptive strategies. So what you end up seeing is this communal response uh, to tragedy, calamity, that ends up taking a variety of forms. So a legal way in which we can reorganize how tenant leases are formed. Uh, we see it with an agricultural way, which, you know, at the base, how do you feed your people? But then there's also a social aspect, which is the distribution of land and power. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that you need a combination of those things to be able um, to withstand calamity or to develop certain adaptive strategies. But at this point in saying that, I think we have to take a step back and say, well, if you've changed the social makeup, you've changed the, the social redistribution of power, you've changed the material redistribution of land, you've changed the legal precedents on which you're able to access that land seems to me that you formed a new type of community. Oh, for sure. So yeah. I'm unconvinced by the This is why the they argument. call it the industrial revolution. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <Or> the peasant <laughs> revolts. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I remain unconvinced by the argument that these same communities were able to persist. I think what could be characterized as building resilience is actually maybe creating uh, a new society within uh, this time frame. Out of creating the ashes a, of the old. Exactly. So at what point can you say... That similarly, a student, when they embark in year one of their studies, faces failures, treads on, is the same student in year four or year three. I think we are created anew. Oh, it's progress. It's progress. Yeah. But then, like, <laughs> start to take pause with, um, like, this is where the, uh, the academic in uh, both of us uh, take pause because what you're kind of describing there is an evolution towards a better and better society. Well, that might not be the case though, because you could uh, progress historically in time towards something uh, less beneficial and therefore the society collapses, but the community collapses. But it, that's also an evolution. Out. But that's also an evolutionary paradigm, right? Nothing stays still. I, I agree with change, but progress and regression is where I take pause. I, I I wouldn't go so far as to call it progress or regression. I think it's change, and it's change vis-a-vis uh, -vis or heading towards a certain uh, horizon, mm. and that horizon is also in change. So you have multiple things in flux going on, mm. but yet 
the common denominator in these analysts' accounts are something called resilience. So what they're saying is that there's something static, a set of characteristics, how Rydell put it. Oh, and those static. characteristics I never really thought of it that way. Well, this That's is the underlying thing, and, and they're not going to come out and say it that way because methodologically it doesn't it, it can't support so, their account. So is resilience then because I, I never thought of resilience actually in this way and that's that's the 100% truth. Um so when you say static like resilience is stain whereas is a society vulnerable if it's changing? Well these these are the questions. <laughs> the, the, these 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 are the million dollar questions, Matthew. Huh, so that's interesting. So, okay, so this will lead me into the third article that I want to kind of bridge into this discussion. And uh, this one uh, comes from uh, Durham University by Ben Anderson. And it's an article that appeared in the journal Politics in 2015 uh, entitled, What Kind of Thing is Resilience? Can we, um, can I just, as as we go, just because these are some of our earlier conversations, um, it'll be a little less seamless when I jump in like that. But I'm going to, um, when Phil's talking about um, articles he's interested for his research or his thinking or that fall within his sphere, I'm going to be the person who throws out the clarity um, clarity uh, question. So when he's saying thing, is it like a material thing or is it like an object with a capital O? I think Anderson is saying, listen, the the word resilience has been flung around for a while. Um, analysts have been using it in a variety of ways. Policy analysts have been oh, writing it into to whatever they write their mm. policy analyst stuff yeah. into. It's, it, you know, politicians are throwing around. We had Barack mm. Obama come out and say Boston is a resilient city. Right. So it's kind of a buzzword. Um, so what is it really? And so resilience, is, this just popped in my head, but resiliency is uh, motive, like uh, it's motile, like it moves around, right? Um, and it, uh, depending on who's using it, when, where, and how, the concept kind of changes semiotically with meaning. A little bit, yeah. Um, you know, Anderson, Anderson kind of says, uh, resilience, whatever it is, uh, appears now to be everywhere, uh, the latest iteration of the promise of security enacted in diverse policies and programs offered as a desperate hope of survival in a world of ro- ro- roiling crisis, rolling crisis, and demanded of subjects, populations, and systems. So it's something that is imposed, something that um, gets characterized as it's 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 one of these things that mm. ends up being something like a catch-all. So mm-hmm. his his main question is, you know, what is it? Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about it, we're using it, we're telling people they should be it, what is it? Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm I'm not going to deep dive as much in, into this article because I think... Let's cherry pick on that. Well, I think, yeah. I think Anderson's main point and what he's doing is basically introducing a set of articles for a special issue in politics. Uh, so I invite, you know, the readers to, to deep dive into that. Um, but what he's saying is that there are multiple resiliences and we see this across the fields of analysts using the concept, writing about it. And that resilience is actually more than one thing. And that's being used in various types or forms uh, to fit kind of um, the case or to fit some sort of theoretical framework for whatever is being applied to. Um, also, just uh, FYI, all these articles, if they're, I guess, are, are they all in like the public domain? Like, can we link to them? Usually in the show notes. Yeah, we can send some links to them. Yeah, um, 
you know, or at least the citation, because then you could probably just Google Scholar yeah, anything we'll, as well. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll put these in the show notes, yeah. uh, so you can check them out. Um, so I, I just want to say one kind of um, last, well, it's actually a major point okay. of, of what Anderson. <laughs> one last major point. One last, that's probably going to be our first major point of what, many major points. So, so major point one, <laughs> ma- major point one, and I want to, and I want us to continue thinking about mental health in the classroom this that we can build in techniques to help students which i am totally in favor for i'm not you know i'm not saying not to do that that that's just that that would be bananas that'd be kind of evil yeah um <laughs> but what i am saying is um okay well i'm going to i'm going to i'm going to quote anderson <laughs> on this so in the concluding comments he says how do we take seriously the multiplicity of a phenomenon while avoiding the problem of numerous individual case studies of resilience in practice how do we make resilience into an object of inquiry rather than reprodu- reproduce consoling accounts that repeat what is already well known in other critiques of neoliberalism? Mm. The question is far from unique to resilience. Indeed, it turns on how we deal with generality and specificity, but it is intensified on reading uh, the special issue uh, that teams with the variety, varied differential articulations of resilience. So what he's saying is it's less the usage of a concept that is problematic with something like resilience, but actually how we switch or shift between the specificity and the generality Mm. of social relationships. And I think this is something that dives into the heart of mental health in classrooms. It certainly dives into the heart of how to do uh, research with vulnerable populations, um, how to construct a research project that needs concepts to make sense of what we're seeing. Okay. Okay. Slow down. So, 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 so that was kind of the, okay. the last but important kind of point. I, I think so. And it's was, interesting how you put it too, because that was the first thing I said for clarity is like, is he talking about it in materialistic terms? Like these are events of resilience. Like look at these examples out in the world and we can learn from the examples and these techniques people are actually employing, or is it um, an objective um, as we call it, where you treat it as an object of inquiry. Is that, I always get it mixed up. Is that hermeneutics or is that, well, we'll do, uh, we're going to do another episode ontology? on the hermeneutical okay. approach. Okay, don't worry. We'll have lots of uh, good music in there to break that up. Um, but um, it is interesting that um, rather than getting lost in a philosophical discussion about, um, you know, the linguistic components of the usage of con- terms like resilience and how it's linked to histories and things, we use that as a jumping off point to go right back down into the, the sort of ground level into the classrooms and applying these concepts. And I think ultimately this is what we want this podcast to be about is taking theory and putting it into practice in a way. So good on you, Phil, for returning it back into the classroom. You mentioned classroom projects and another thing as well. So let's focus in on the classrooms and talk about real techniques of our bodies that we've used to manage mental health. So before talking about that i'll just say i never really got more than a cursory um like uh session i guess you would call a training session on 
um, what to do with mental health. Um, and it would be something similar that you would have in a workplace. It's like, these are the resources that are available. These are some techniques to identify if someone's in a mental health crisis and so on. Um, and other than that, I just sort of tried to use my own common sense and discretion and empathy. And it was like, you're being a human being trying to be a human being. Yeah. But also you don't want to cause harm. Right. And when you think Fair you're, enough. when you think with people who are for one, like how do you determine whether they're in a mental health quote unquote crisis versus, you know, stress and anxiety that would be natural amongst any, you know, stressed out undergrad or whatever. But, um, then it's also like if they are in a crisis or if they're right on that brink, something I say might sort of, you fear that is going to like push somebody over and whether that happens or it works that way. Like, I don't know. Right. So what you're saying is that there could be a fear from the professor or from a teaching assistant or from whoever is kind of in charge of that course to even attempt to intervene Yeah, because that intervention may trigger something yeah. may cause something interesting. So really what you're asking is what is the role to intervene? How do we intervene? And then under what circumstances can we intervene successfully? And also add to that um, follow up as well. Cause I'd feel really awkward trying to send like an email after and being like, so sure. did you access the mental health resources? Right. Cause like, honest to God, like I, I'd just be worried about these students, like, because, you know, I'm, like, a nice teacher or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> like, well, my you, students or whatever. I but mean, you care. Yeah, I care, right? And when you have somebody sitting in your office hour bawling for, like, 20 straight minutes, and, well, not 20 straight minutes. That so would be hard, though. But it, it's, it's tough, anyone, right? Yeah. You know? So, yeah. I don't know. It's, um, so, when to intervene, what is the role of the intervener? And I don't, I don't have any answers for that. I don't. Um, and it's know, weird, the, at, like... At our, I don't just speak candidly, but at our school, um, once you're in that sort of mental health system, obviously it's all anonymous, but people get informed along the way. For sure. And this is like, this really I, keeps coming to my mind is how this relates to when you witness uh, sexual harassment or sexual violence. Um, what is your role to intercede? Like me, my first thought is to like punch the dude in the Right. <laughs> but um um but also like how much are you supposed to intercede what is like doing more harm is another question right. for sure that comes up there um so i mean they're big questions obviously we're not going to solve them in no any there's no way that we space. can explore all this but i think i think what what we can do and what we've started is to start talking about it mm. uh, i think we're going to continue to explore this topic because it's something that I feel is interesting from our own perspectives, our own histories. I also think it's something that our listeners would benefit from. And if you have any suggestions on techniques uh, that you've used or that you've seen used, or maybe, you know, you're sitting in a classroom feeling, uh, you know, anxious, feeling this desire just to let everything go. And your professor, your teaching assistant, uh, a mentor, someone did something or said something and it just clicked. It just worked. Let us know. So send us an email. Tell us your stories at semi-intellectual at gmail.com or tweet, tweet at us. If you, if you want to share them at the underscore S I M underscore P O D that's the SIM pod. And that's Matt and Phil's Twitter account. 
if you want anything to remain confidential, if you want to, you know, just let us know in the email. We won't read your name. If you don't even want us to read your story, we won't do that. But we're going to hope to carry on this discussion and read some of these stories um, throughout uh, throughout our journey with you. Challenge stigma. Huh? Challenge stigma. Yeah. Ch- Challenge stigma. Like we we got I don't know how hashtags work, so I figured I just threw a hashtag out there at Phil. But he looked at me like I uh, just farted in the room. I'm I'm not totally uh, <laughs> hashtaggy. Well, or, or like Twitter versed. Twitter versed. Twitter. Like I'm not versed in the in the mm. Twitter. But isn't the Twitter verse a place? Isn't that an object oh. for inquiry? That's a thing. Yeah, I think so. Maybe. Oh. Well, I... for next time, <laughs> maybe we'll explore Twitter verse. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add to our discussion, Matt? Um, no, just, uh, be sure to reach out. The only way you can actually challenge stigma is if you start these conversations and, uh, especially if you want to send them along to us, um, please note in your email, whether you want us to read it online or not, or, um, if it's just for our own uh, benefit. So I encourage you all to reach out. And we love to hear stories from our listeners. So don't be shy. Hey, so we're back. Uh, we have some stuff to share with you, uh, some recommendations and some things uh, that we find interesting. Matt, what do you got for us today? I brought in a couple of books today. Um, one of them is one of the best books I've ever read in the last, say, five years. It's, it's a tall feat. It is a tall feat. I read a... Uh, not as many books as I should, I think, actually. I need to start getting into more reading. So this is probably why we're doing recommendations here. Um, so the first book that I brought in is called 1491, All Numbers. And it's by Charles C. Mann. I'm passing it over to Phil so he can look at it. That's M-A-N-N. M-A-N-N. Um, and it's basically, in every positive sense of the word, it's like revisionist archaeology. I'm pretty sure the author was a science journalist. Um, so he is a non-archaeologist, so he kind of writes really well. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's like based, the premise of the book is, um, the history of North, Central, and South America up to the, uh, year before Columbus arrived. And the end of the book kind of touches on the start of colonialization. Um, and then his follow-up book is actually called 1493 and it's, uh, the history of colonialization. How do you say that, Phil? Do you, I always struggle with that word. Colonialization. Col- Colonization? Col- Colonization? Colonial? Col- colonial times. Colonial times. So it's... Like uh, medieval times. Yeah. Colonization. <laughs> colonization. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... What a, else do you got for us? Uh, another book um, is kind of uh, a little bit different. It's a, a work of fiction um, by Albert Camus, one of my favorite Camus. authors. Camus. C-A-M-U-S. Um, many people, if they're saying this is a first book to read by Camus, you might recommend The Stranger, which I also recommend. Absolutely. Um, but this book is, uh, that I brought in is called The Plague. And I really like it as somebody who studied medical anthropology because it um, kind of blends uh, how society can collapse from a uh, epidemic. Um, and also um, Camus is considered to be an existentialist. So he uses this, his works of fiction to put forth philosophical arguments. And, 
Were those picked <coughs> simultaneously? Like, whoa, did you think about them before picking them? Um, well, 1491 for sure, because as I said, it's one of the best books I've read in a number of years. But uh, Camus, I just saw it on my bookshelf and uh, snagged it. Because like, it's filler. It seems like uh, the fifteenth, late fifteenth century there, and Camus might go well together. The plague. Oh, with, oh, oh! Because Spaniards brought plague to well, uh, the peoples that they uh, they, they had traded rough, with. They had some rough times there. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's that's one interpretation. Um, yeah, I guess they're somewhat connected. Yeah, a bit, <laughs> a little bit of synergy there. Um, have you? read either one of them i know you haven't read 1491 because no. i asked you before no i haven't read that and actually i haven't read the plague by camus that seems something uh, really? yeah it's not uh it's on my bookshelf now as matt passes it awesome. off to phil I will, I, will, <laughs> I will consume that for sure um and, and for i will say with the um plague i actually uh listened to it before i read it um so there's some good audio um uh what would you say? Like audiobooks? Audiobooks, yeah. Audio recordings of uh, The Plague. Um, and if you are looking for a free option rather than going to like audible.com, um, uh, Levervox. Do you know what that is? Levervox? Uh, no. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Levervox. Yeah. I think it's L I B. Libra. L I B R I. Yep. Vox. Um, they have any book that's in the public domain. Um, they have volunteers who read them out loud. So if you don't want to read a book or if you're on. Um, a bus right now, yeah, perhaps. Maybe, maybe you transit. Could, yeah, and they have a really easy to use app as well. So sweet. Do you have a third recommendation? Um, not for books. I think we'll settle down on my recommendations. But I highly recommend again, uh, fourteen ninety one by Charles C. Mann and uh, the Plague by Albert Camus. And uh, we're gonna post some links in the show notes uh, to those books uh, where you can get them. Um, I want to talk to you about a podcast that I've been listening to. It's it's going to reveal kind of my nerdy side. Uh, it's called Star Trek: The Next Conversation, uh, and that's uh, with Matt Meyer and Andrew Secunda. And uh, so I I dabble in Star Trek. Are you I a, really like. Would it. you call yourself a Trekkie? Uh, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Um, my wife and I enjoy rewatching old. Uh, old episodes of the originals and now we've gotten into the next generation. So this podcast is like a weekly um, overview of each episode. Uh, and Matt Meyer is absolutely hilarious. Andrew Secunda, eh, you know, he, he's, he's pretty good too. Um, and uh, contrary to how most people get involved with this podcast, um, I didn't listen to the Nerdist before encountering Matt Myra. So I started listening to the Star Trek Next Gen- Next Conversation. Oh, so Matt Myers from the Nerdist. Matt Myers I've heard of the Nerdist. Yeah, Matt Myers from the Nerdist, which I have listened to since, which is another great podcast. Um, but uh, Matt Myers and his wife um, do Aww. another podcast. Aww. Yeah. So, so it but I'm gonna, me I'm of gonna, you and your wife. <laughs> yeah, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep that for another, for another time. <laughs> so okay, I, okay. So I have too many questions about your uh, oh, trekkiness. Um, so first, I find it rather interesting that uh, you're being um, escorted into becoming more of a trekkie because of your guided, wife. guided, Walk, walked through. Um, in this guiding, are uh, you being dragged by your wrist? No, <laughs> no, she's no. I'm going like freely. Vulcan neck pinch. No, I'm, I'm no. <laughs> no, I'm going freely in the Star Trek journey. You know, <laughs> since we started watching, I've picked up uh, two nitpicker guides. Um, 
What are these like nerd manuals to yeah. like find inconsistencies in the Absolutely. physics? Absolutely. So like, so the episodes that I love the most is, uh, you know, going down to the mechanical room, looking at the what's date. the mechanical room? Well, the engine room, the engine. Oh, bay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Like oh, so so when you started watching these uh, or listening to these, did you start with the the original? series yeah and, so and we started yeah we, yeah we started with the original star trek and then we made our way into um the next next gen uh and which time we stopped watching the originals although like you know the originals have great characters good plot development we we wanted to see some q q what is q. a q so if if you if you know if you've <laughs> watched star a, trek i'm barely uh, a star warsian <laughs> or whatever those people are Oh, called. you did not just do that. <laughs> We're talking about Star Trek, not yeah, Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. No, but I said... oh, Two I, different things. Okay, well... Wow. We are up is, alone in the woods here. There's yeah, nobody else is, around for yeah. miles. So, so I'm sorry. So, I'll take that back right now. So Q is kind of like a <laughs> omnipotent, omnipresent uh, species of being who is absolutely fantastic. In the form of man? Yes. Is well, he you Jesus can take, Christ? Take any form he wants. Is he Jesus Christ? No. Okay. No, you can take any form. Go like, on. We're, we're posts. Go on. <laughs> Come on, stay, stay, stay with us here. So that's Q. We wanted to see Q, but then we also really wanted to watch the episodes of the Borg. And the Borg is uh, a key element in Star Trek. Uh, so anyway, we, we don't need to get into Star Trek too much, but... <laughs> can uh, you actually, can you please take the time to explain what the Borg is to me? May, because I've, I've heard of this and I don't actually know. Is that like... Yeah, please. I, I have no idea. Well, uh, okay, so simply put, the Borg is an entity that lives far beyond the neutral zone. So far beyond uh, the galaxies. Yeah, so far beyond the galaxies that are, you know, habitually toured by the Enterprise. Okay. Uh, And the Borg uh, is coming to to basically consume them. So they're, they're an entity that consumes all other species and life forms, drags them in, and... They, I think their political kind of view is that they can form one strong united entity or species, uh, but in so doing, they they destroy everything in their path. So, so like, one, so they're unitarians. No, they're like they're 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 made out to be pretty like they're baddies. They're the, the, the they're baddies. The baddies. They're baddies. Like so. One, so is it a democracy versus dictatorship sort of situation? Well, would you say because of the oneness of the Borg? The uh, see the thing is you have to watch Star Trek like these lines are blurred so like the Ooh. idea of like the democracy or a dictatorship is very human mm. and there's other life forms other species that live on different levels of consciousness that don't necessarily follow those same rules have you ever seen Firefly no, no I don't no? think I have really oh it's got like this insane cult following it's like a newer in that sense, it's a, like a newer version of Star Trek. Oh. And uh, the things that Reavers, they're called. And oh. they're like these cannibalistic um, badasses that live out on the edges of the known galaxy. Right. And um, the premise of Firefly is um, two languages uh, exist in the future. English and like Cantonese or Mandarin, one of the okay. two. And so everyone, but then everybody has gone and colonized these outer planets because they have terraforming technology now um but they've adopted like a cowboyness so it's like all like frontier frontier sort of stuff 
Um, and that's what the board kind of reminds me of is oh, these okay. reverse, except for the cannibalism, I guess. You realize uh, someone out there is going to email us with a very nasty comment. Oh, how really? we don't. Oh, no. how, how we didn't understand these things. Somebody's listening to this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and you know, I, I, I would have to agree. I probably got some stuff wrong about Star Trek. I think Star so Trek. too. That's, that's interesting. We'll have to return to Star Trek. Yeah. Um, so we'll treat, we'll treat this as my education into the world of Star Trek without right. me watching any episodes. Although I, I have seen like when I was a, a youngster, um, Star Trek ne- Next Generation was yeah. producing new episodes. So, like, that was something that you watched on, like, right. whatever, Wednesday night at 8. Yeah. Um, so, I have some favorites there, and I appreciate it. I also, two of my uncles were, like, hardcore Trekkie guys, like, way For back sure. in the day. So, um, like, I remember one Christmas, I, I must have been, where one of them got the other one, the Klingon Dictionary. And I was, like, I was, like, eight, and I'm, like... You can learn Klingon. That's a thing. Wow. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, maybe we'll come back to it. We'll come Uh, back to Star Trek on another day. But that was just a dose of what is about. If if you have comments, uh, be they uh, Please stop. (laughs) No, don't stop. Send them to us. Uh, Email us at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. You can tweet us your comments at the underscore S-I-M underscore pod pod on twitter the sim pod uh send us send us your your comments about our recommendations again that's um 1491 um by charles c man by charles c man and, and i got the second edition in front of me oh, it's it has a <laughs> has a pretty cover maybe we'll, maybe we'll post a picture of the cover and uh albert uh, albert camus the plague uh two books recommended by matt Buy that. Uh, buy the plague in a used bookstore. Support your independent booksellers. Absolutely, whenever possible. And if you want to listen to a podcast that is much more intelligent <laughs> than I will ever be about Star Trek, that's Matt Myers and Andrew Secunda's Star Trek: The Next Conversation. Right in my side, and carry me to my new home.